Hello again, folks. This is Andy, the Analytical Preacher. We are in our third podcast in our series about the Bible and politics or the Bible and government. We established in the first couple of podcasts looking at some scriptures that God actually ordained government. So governments are not really a man-made institution. God ordained governments and God assigned them the primary responsibility of restraining evil and punishing the wrongdoers in society. So we know the Bible tells us individually we should not seek revenge. We should not try to right the wrongs that are done to us. But the Bible does say that the government should establish police officers, courts, prisons, rehabilitation centers, and those public government institutions are are the ones that are to restrain the evil and to punish or rehabilitate the wrongdoers. So, of course, this means... Just generally speaking, at a broad level, Christians are not at all for defunding the police. We are for holding individual officers accountable when they abuse their authority without question. We are not for defunding the police or cleaning out all the prisons or whatever the other fads are today. Those things would be counterproductive according to a biblical worldview But I think most folks sort of agree, they say as you get in these conversations, the government should be able to provide more than just police and a court system or court system and a prison system. The government should be able to do more. We don't necessarily disagree, though, again, that needs to remain restraining evil, protecting its citizens needs to remain the government's primary function. Where the biblical worldview, where an evangelical Christian or a Bible-based Christian comes down Different from where most politicians today come down, we do not think that money is the most important thing. In fact, we don't think money is really that important at all. And while we don't want to see people in poverty, of course, and we want to do everything we can to alleviate poverty, we think there's some other places where equality is much more important. So politicians, when they get in front of a camera, because this is what the polling tells them. They love to talk about income inequality. They love to talk about wealth inequality. And there's some stuff that we'll talk about at the end of this podcast related to that. But the truth is, there are just a couple of areas where Christians are much more concerned about the lack of equality than money. Because again, money in the grand scheme of things is just not that important. Let me give you a couple of of examples. If you say to me, are the incomes equal in this country? I would say, no, the income and the wealth are not equal in this country. If you say to me, is justice equally applied in this country? I would say no. And that is a much bigger issue than incomes not being equally applied. Now, again, because it shows up on our TV screens and just sort of the media inundates us, we think about rogue police officers being the problem with equal justice. But if you look at the numbers, if you look at the data, that's not the biggest problem with equal justice. The biggest problem is essentially abuse by prosecutors and prosecutors are able to misuse their authority much more so with a certain segment of the population than they are with other segments of the population. And so a Christian would say, if we want to worry about inequality, let's begin worrying about inequality of justice. Let's make sure that prosecutors have not been set up where they can essentially abuse the system with no consequences. Number two, I think we would say the second biggest inequality is the opportunity for education in our country. I don't think anybody can argue that every student has the same access 
same opportunity to get a good education in our country. They just simply don't. And if, again, if you say to me, would you rather level out the incomes of all the families with children in America, or would you rather level out the education opportunities for all families with children? I'll choose the latter a thousand times out of a thousand. We have to make our education opportunities in this country more equal across the board. And that's so much more important than politicians going on and on about wealth inequality and really even the strength of our families. Again, however important government is, the Bible is clear that the family unit is so much more important. And so when you say, well, this child grew up with less money than this child, I can speak from personal experience. Almost every friend that I had, their family had more wealth and made more income than my family. And yet my family unit was as strong as any of the family units that I knew with my mom and dad and the strength of their marriage and taking us to church, etc. And I wouldn't trade their money for my strong family ever. And so I think the problem is The government can't completely control or make strong families. That's true. But what we want to make sure the government doesn't do is hurt families. And I say this simply because the two things intersect. Back in the mid-late 60s, America started what we called the War on Poverty. Over the course of the War on Poverty, so say the last six decades, America spent $20 trillion dollars. So if you look at all the actual physical wars that America fought, we spent more in the war on poverty in the last six decades than on all the physical wars we fought in our history combined. And yet the poverty rate today is essentially where it was when the war on poverty began. But a number of political analysts strongly suggest that the structure of the war on poverty has directly contributed to the disintegration of families of poor individuals has directly contributed to the breaking down of the black family, which was incredibly strong and powerful part of the social fabric before the war on poverty started. So we just want to be careful. The biblical worldview says if your war on poverty, one, if it's not going to be successful, let's watch out for it. But even if it's going to be successful in alleviating income inequalities, but it's going to harm the strength of family equality, or it's not going to address educational equality, or it's not going to address justice equality, then it's probably focusing money not well spent. Let me make two more points on this idea of a social safety net or welfare system or a war on poverty. There's a really interesting little quick story that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 21. And basically, and I'll read the parable real quick, but basically the story is do not get caught up in what people say, but demand results, and especially from your leaders. Let me read it to you. Matthew 21 verses 28 to 31 says this, what do you think? Jesus said, a man had two sons and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, oh, I go, sir, but did not actually go. Which of the two did the will of the father? The crowd listening said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. In other words, you're saying what people want to hear. They're actually doing what God wants them to do. That same rule applies Folks, we have to be so careful with politicians. They tell us what we want to hear. 
So Christians say, we have to demand actual results. Don't butter me up. Do something policy-wise. One way that comes out is Christians always have their antennas up when we're looking for who we're going to vote for. Whether a politician comes out for something or against something. And here's why. Because when I'm against something and a politician convinces me they're against that same thing, that same bad, that same evil, then I tend to cut them slack. And I listen to what they say. I listen to what they promise rather than what they actually do. Politicians understand this. So cheap politicians, I will say, they tend to create these enemies and then gather like-minded constituents around those enemies, making hollow promises that never make a difference. I'll give you a couple of examples. If a politician says, budget money is tight, so let's design our immigration policies so that immigrants and their families can become economically acclimated and can become independent, financially independent, and get the most out of our education system. Let's do it, but let's do it in the most cost-effective way possible. Okay, that's great. Someone says, comes out and says, money's tight, inflation's high, I don't want to spend any money on immigrants. Let's only spend money on real Americans. Okay, you can see the clear difference. One, they're saying, I understand money's tight, so we have to make common sense proposals, but we still want to help them. The other one's saying, okay, I'm kind of painting immigrants as the enemy. Another one would be, I want to help the poor. Let's put some policies in place that can actually help poor individuals climb out of the hole of poverty, of cyclical poverty. That's a great thing to say. When politicians say, tax the rich, you need to look askew. You need to vote for their opponent. Tax the rich. We can tax the rich over and over and over, and the money never help a single person. But if that's their goal is to tax the rich, then again, they may tax. It may not help the poor. If their goal is to help the poor, then they may come up with a better way to do it. So we really want to be careful. What are politicians saying Versus what are politicians actually doing? Are we getting results? I don't care what your intentions are. I care what your results are. And the second point related to this kind of welfare, war on poverty, social safety net type policy is policy. Christians, again, believe there are some things that the government should provide. The government should provide our military. The government should provide our flood control and those sorts of things. Very hard for a private company to provide military. Very hard for a private company to provide flood control. But when it comes to things like welfare, the Bible actually tells us that charity needs to start in our families. First uh, Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, Paul writes about that. And of course, the Bible tells individual families. The Bible tells Christians and churches that they need to provide the second wave, the main wave. And so we would say that a lot of this charity should be left to private sector. It should be left to private charities. It should be left to Christian organizations. And we see that repeatedly throughout the Bible in both the Old and the New Testament. The government does have a role to play, uh, but we want to really encourage what we don't want to do is tell Christians or tell any constituent, but tell Christians, we're going to spend other people's money to solve the poverty issue. Christians should say, no, the first line of defense for us will not be spending other people's tax money, but it will be 
I will give my time and my money. My wife and I will give our time and our money. My family will contribute to this nonprofit or to that Christian group or to that church to make a difference in my community. I will actively and personally work with those who are in need as opposed to our first line of defense being let's spend other people's money. So it's just a different way that the Bible would really teach a Christian to look at it. Let me close out this podcast and I'm going to, you say, okay, you you contrast the politicians in this thing, Andy. Now you're going to sound like a politician because I said, look, money's not everything. Money's not the most important thing. And it's not at all. I'm going to talk out of the other side of my mouth a little bit because there is something that we learn and we learn this from the Bible and we learn this from history. One of the things that governments do, that leaders do, that people in power do, is they tend to, the wealthy, the powerful, tend to take from those who have less in order to benefit themselves. There's a book called Why Nations Fail, and in that book, they refer to this as extractive economic institutions. When God actually established the first government of Israel, so the second book of the Bible, the Hebrews are led out of Egyptian bondage and God sets up a government, which in this case was sort of a combined government and religion together. God actually intentionally designed that first government to counter this effect. And so he, instead of establishing them with a king or a prime minister, he had them ruled by this priesthood, the Levites. And the Levites weren't even given an allotment of land. Everybody else, all the other tribes of Israel were given an allotment of land, etc. The Levites were not. And so it was God's way of saying, if you give people this type of authority, this is the way they will abuse it. Later on, God's people petitioned him. Can we please have a king like all the other nations have a king? And God said, okay, you're probably not going to like the end result. But here's what he said to the kings. Do not try to build up these giant governments. Do not try to build up these giant estates. Do not roll yourself in all of these luxuries, which the kings, of course, ultimately did as God had warned the people about. But God told him, do not act this way. This is human nature. Here's what happens. The politicians, again, will constantly talk to us about, oh, this income inequality or this wealth inequality, or we want to tax the rich. We want to do this. That is essentially smoke and mirrors. That's waving the red flag in front of the bull, the the red cape in front of the bull to try to distract the bull's attention so that you can do what you want to do in the arena. Here's what happens with politicians. Christians with a biblical worldview are not as concerned that there are a few wealthy individuals out there that just make insane amounts of money. And then there's others who just make a regular old middle class income. We're not as concerned about trying to take from that really wealthy person and give it to the person with less money. That's really not a biblical concept. Helping the poor in a time of need, trying to reestablish them from a personal private charity level is absolutely a biblical concept. Here's what the Bible warns Christians about that I really think other American citizens need to be more active and take more note of is when the government actually is not, it's not that they're not giving enough to the poor. It's that they're actually taking from the lower classes and establishing policy that favors 
the upper classes. And both parties do it. Let me give you a couple of examples. We have on in our tax system what's called a mortgage interest deduction, which means that the interest rate that you pay on a mortgage that you have, you can take off of your taxes. We know only about three out of five Americans own their own home, and that that three out of five Americans are almost all in the upper, in the middle and upper income classes. The mortgage interest tax deduction literally takes money from poor people who have to rent and transfers that money via the tax system to the wealthier people. And it really goes farther. The go- there are two government uh, sort of backed organizations, uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, that help support the mortgage market. So again, the government is actively spending time and billions of dollars to support wealthy individuals being able to get good, cheap mortgages. Why? Why would the government focus on the top 60% of earners and not the bottom 40%? It goes on. There there are pre-tax benefits. There are tax benefits, I should say. Tax benefits to health insurance that employees of large companies get. And so it's simply this. If I work for a large company and I have a nice white-collar job, the the company provides me with either free or subsidized health care, and I don't have to pay tax on that free or subsidized health care. If I am a poor individual who does not work for a larger company, I don't have that type of white-collar job, and I have to buy my own insurance, there's a good chance that I'm not getting a subsidy to help me buy that insurance. We can go on and on electric cars. All the politicians tell us electric cars are great because they're going to save the environment. But the truth is, a lot of electricity is generated by burning coal, by burning diesel, by burning natural gas. That's no cleaner than the gasoline that I'm going to put in my combustion engine anyway. So the fact that I've got to plug that electric car up to the electric grid... Coal use has actually been going up in the last couple of years to generate electricity in America. So to use coal to make electricity to plug in a car, you're really not benefiting the uh, the environment. But here's what happens. Electric cars are heavily subsidized by the tax system. Electric cars are so expensive, even with the subsidies, that really only the upper, upper income individuals are able to buy electric cars. And so the government is forcing lower income individuals to subsidize the purchase of electric cars by upper income individuals. Sometimes it's not just a tax break for rich versus poor, but there's direct corporate welfare. As I am recording this podcast, the Congress is in the process of voting for a semiconductor support bill uh, so this is being recorded in July of 2022. And Congress is in the process of doing this. Let me just be straight up. Americans, America's semiconductor industry has been one of the greatest benefits to modern mankind in this country and across the world. The semiconductor industry has just been marvelous in the technology they've created and the things that it has allowed us to improve. They do not need government support. They have plenty of money on their own. They have plenty of smart people on their own. Why on earth would our government be giving money? Corporate welfare is really the only way I can think to describe it. It, it, it 
irritates a Christian to see mortgage deductions and health insurance be uh, skewed like that and to see electric car subsidies going to the richest people and to see money being spent on corporate welfare. It's just outrageous to see these things. But again, that's how government works. They talk out of one side of their mouth that they're interested in helping the poor or taxing the rich while with the other hand, hoping you don't notice they're giving these free handouts to these upper income folks and to these corporate folks because that's who they have to uh, sort of grease in order to get reelected, if you will. And even really the student loan forgiveness that continues to be bantered about. I know one congresswoman suggested that we should be willing to have our tax money go to help somebody besides just ourselves. That is absolutely not the issue with student loan forgiveness as far as a Christian is concerned. In fact, every Christian, really every wealthy person that I speak to, they quickly and readily say, we have no problem with our tax money going to help other people, going to fund Medicare or Medicaid spending for children who don't have health insurance. We're perfectly okay with that. It's not a matter of money going to help someone besides yourself. The reason we're opposed to the student loan forgiveness is simply this. It's not equitable across the board. Some individuals took out a student loan. They've already paid it all. Some individuals worked two part-time jobs to pay for college so they didn't have to take a student loan. And those who've already paid the student loan off or never took one out don't get any benefit. Those who took a student loan out and have not paid it down on schedule, now all of a sudden they're up for a benefit. That's not fair. That's not an equal application. But here's the real problem Christians have with it. It's simply this. Those who have the largest student debt also tend to be relatively wealthy individuals. Those who have the largest student debt tend to be people that have gone to dental school, to medical school, to law school. They've got MBAs from a big private university. And so they've generated all of this money. And so again, why would we pay off the debt for someone who in just a few years is going to have worked themselves into an upper income stratus Strata, why would we pay for their student loan stuff? Let me close out with one more example here. In addition to the fiscal spending of the Congress and and doing these weird things about extracting from the poor part of the economy to subsidize the wealthier part of the economy, in addition to doing that, kind of the latest game in town, the latest shell game in town is actually monetary policy as it's conducted by the Federal Reserve. And if you don't understand the Federal Reserve, it's just a it's it's an institution. It's a government institution. It sort of sits over top of all the banks in the country. Um, it has to do with creating money. It has to do with putting money into the banking system and things like that. You know, politicians will make fun of what they call trickle down economics. That's oh, yeah, they talk about that trickle down economics. They're just trying to help rich people not pay as much tax. But here's the truth. When John F. Kennedy, who was president back in the early 60s, when John F. Kennedy originally did a tax restructuring, and he used the term that a rising tide will lift all boats. That's sort of where they get this trickle-down idea from. If you help small business people, etc., do better with their businesses, then they can hire more people, and the people that they hire can buy more goods, which will help the next small business do better, which can hire more people, etc., And so JFK's comment was a rising tide from a tax restructuring like this can lift all boats. 
They make fun of that by talking about trickle-down economics, while at the same time, again, their left hand is over here making a motion so that you pay attention to it, while their right hand is doing something behind a curtain. They, they have what they, they've instituted what they call quantitative easing and modern monetary theory. And this is what they're trying to do, they say. Produce a quote-unquote wealth effect. How do you produce this wealth effect? Okay, they get really esoteric here. Well, we go through portfolio balance channels and blah, blah, blah. In other words, this is what they're trying to do. We're trying to make rich people richer. We're trying to literally raise the price of treasury bonds. We're trying to raise the price of mortgages and mortgage-backed securities. We're trying to raise the price of houses, of cryptocurrency, of oil, of gold, of stocks. We're trying to raise the value, create a wealth effect from those things, and then that will ultimately work its way into the economy. But here's what's happening. It's not working its way into the economy. It's making stock owners and bond owners and those who invest in gold and cryptocurrency and those who can afford to buy a second or a third house. It's making them incredibly wealthy while poverty and income and things like that are simply not improving. And so Christians are, and again, it's a little complicated in some ways to understand it. Christians are opposed to modern monetary theory, MMT, they call it sometimes. We're opposed to quantitative easing. We're opposed to artificially keeping interest rates low when interest rates are artificially low. People that depend on their savings, like the elderly, that depend on the interest on their savings to live, they get damaged horribly. And people that borrow money cheaply to buy stocks and to buy gold and to buy cryptocurrency, they benefit tremendously from it. And so again, Christians see these sleight of hand monetary games, modern monetary theory and wealth effect games that the Federal Reserve has been playing. We see that as just another type of extractive economic institution where the government now in power in order to maintain their power and please those who put them in power and who puts them in power of uh, big businesses, all the tech companies and all that sort of stuff, to please those who put them in power, they provide pushback. Again, they talk about, we'll tax those people and we'll redistribute it to the poor, but you don't see that happening. What we see is mortgage interest deduction, healthcare, electric car subsidies, corporate welfare, modern monetary theory, boosting up stock prices so that Congress people's spouses can buy stock and make a lot of money off of it and that sort of stuff. So that's where a Christian would come down. Uh, we may do one more podcast on politics and government or politics and economics uh, just to kind of close up a few uh, loopholes that exist and what we've spoken about so far. But until then, this is Andy. Thanks for listening.